Hi everyone, John Clare here, and welcome to the next installment of the EvoFi podcast, a finance podcast for humans. How are you doing out there? I hope you're having a great day. So today's episode is all about how to pursue a better investment experience. If you're curious enough today to listen to this podcast, you know that there's no shortage of information out there telling you what to do with your money. It seems like everyone out there has an opinion or a better mousetrap when it comes to investing in today's world. So what do we as investors, and frankly as human beings, do with all this information? We're happy to have Dimensional Fund Advisor's Russell Brockett here to talk with us and help us make some sense of it all. Russell holds the Chartered Financial Analyst designation and is a Certified Financial Planner Professional. You may notice Russell's audio sounds a bit different from us in the studio today, and that's because he's joining us over FaceTime from Dimensional's office in Charlotte, North Carolina. But I think it turned out all right. Representing the EvoFi team today is myself, Dave O'Brien, and it also features the debut of our own Mariami Pierce in her first podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, or you can find us on Spotify. We love feedback and questions, so please drop us a line at EvoFi Podcast, that's E-V-O-F-I Podcast at gmail.com, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at EvoFi Podcast. As a reminder, this podcast is 100% free of any tax, legal, or investment advice. Our goal here is education and a little fun. If you need advice in any of the areas mentioned, tailored to your specific circumstances, please feel free to give us a call and we will do what we can to help. So here's the EvoFi team talking with Russell Brockett. Enjoy. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. Welcome to the EvoFi podcast, finance podcast for humans. Today, we're going to be talking to Russell Brockett, CFA and CFP from Dimensional Fund Advisors. And we're going to be talking about pursuing a better investment experience. Russell, welcome to the podcast. We're happy to have you. Great. Thanks. It's uh, great to be here. Uh, so Dave just put me a note here. There was a bunch of acronyms that I just mentioned uh, in your name, CFA, CFP, DFA. So let's take them one at a time. Can you explain briefly CFA for our listeners? Sure. Yeah. So finance is full of kind of acronym soup. There's zero doubt about that, uh, whether you're talking about mutual funds or credentials. Um, so yeah, we'll start with the CFA. Um, so that is the financial analyst credential. And uh, it's a kind of a long process to, uh, to essentially get that designation. But you go through all different types of statistical courses, economics, uh, obviously finance, and uh, three exams, 300 plus hours each exam. It's 300 grueling, hours? But Is that what you said? 300 hours. A lot you could do with 300 hours, couldn't oh you? Oh, gosh. <laughs> wow. Um, but uh, yeah, finish, finish that up. And, uh, and then the CFP is a lo- what a lot of advisors uh, have. It's a great credential in terms of kind of getting the nuts and bolts of financial planning. Kind of gave me just enough to know what I don't know and that I need a financial advisor. Okay. And so the last acronym that I mentioned was DFA. And so around here, we mentioned DFA a lot, but I hear people say dimensional, dimensional fund advisor. So which is it? What's, what's the current correct uh, articulation of where you work? Yeah. So uh, if you ask our chairman and CEO, he would say you're at dimensional fund advisor. So I think it's it's gotten kind of shortened just so uh, people don't have to have a mouthful every time they, they talk about their mutual funds. Um, but uh, yeah, I've been around for, for 35 plus years and the name's kind of changed a little bit, but the, the theory has stayed constant. So I think uh, most of our listeners probably uh, don't know a whole lot about Dimensional Fund Advisors. See, I have to catch myself because I keep wanting to say DFA. But uh, So tell us a little bit about, can you give us a, the the... The 30-second to one-minute version of, of where you work and basic philosophy there, and, and then we'll kind of dive in from there. Sure. So Dimensional was founded by David Boot, who uh, was actually a PhD student at the University of Chicago. And so kind of all the big wigs associated with uh, modern-day finance, kind of the fathers of, uh, of, of economics and financial science, 
uh, really were housed, a lot of them, in University of Chicago. So we kind of learned from the best of those and then decided, you know, I want to go and implement these ideas in the real world. So this was kind of the, the early 80s when uh, computing technology started to get uh, a little bit more mainstream and that you could actually look at these vast amounts of data. And that got a, a great opportunity to, to really start uh, indexing and, uh, and seeing the value in broad diversification, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, today. And uh, that's actually where he first worked, was on the first index fund. And then he realized, you know, there's, there's so much more out there. And uh, yes, you need to be broadly diversified, low cost. But a lot of those academics that he'd worked so closely with, you, uh, you really can implement some of those theories if you're really mindful of implementation, mindful of kind of the costs associated with actually doing things in the real world. So that's what he's been doing since 1981, uh, starting with uh, a small cap type of solution. But now we have you know, U.S. stocks, international stocks, emerging market stocks, as well as bonds and real estate and commodities. Cool. So uh, I imagine we'll get into some more of the, uh, the, the, the underpinnings of kind of the successful investment experience that Dimensional Fund Advisor stands for and we stand by as well. So we'll get into those a little bit more at the heart of the yeah. conversation. All right. So um, I always like to do this and, and everybody around the table always looks at me, but I want to get to the news before Penny's not on the mic today. So she's, she's off the hook, but anything going on? I know Mary, I mean, this is her first one and she's going to be so embarrassed, but she just <laughs> sat for the CFP exam last Friday Yes, and she survived. And Fair now we put her on mic. <laughs> if you had to say anything, what would you say about your experience here on the podcast or kind of getting ready to become a CFP certificate? Well, uh, starting at Evolution Advisors, it's definitely been a great experience so far. I love mm -hmm. working with John and Dave, and mm -hmm. they've really helped me out with taking this CFP exam. And so hopefully good results are in the future. Totally, totally. We sent good vibes your way the whole time, so you'll be just fine. All right. Well, here, this is the fun part. It's all fun, Russell, but this is the part where we get to kind of break the ice with you a little bit. So we have something called the Evo 5. And uh, it's five questions that we ask our guests to kind of just loosen it up a little bit. Don't worry, there's no right. wrong answers. Uh, and the <laughs> bar is low. Uh, so first, what was your first job? My first job, uh, I worked in some focus groups. So my, uh, my family's in marketing. Uh, teach marketing. And so they'd put me in some of these uh, telemarketing booths and, and calling people for, for various surveys, really exciting stuff. So how old were you when you did that? Ooh, um, off and on, kind of through middle school and high school, uh, wow. not unofficially. That's, uh, I, I'm just thinking about what the person at the other end of the phone is thinking when they've got somebody from middle school saying, I'd like to ask you some questions about how you're going to vote in the upcoming election. <laughs> what type of dishwashing detergent you prefer? It's a great skill to have. It. It's, it's like, age. is this a prank call? Exactly. I like to, I like to think the high voice probably uh, helped them stay on the phone a little bit longer. Please don't hang up, sir. Oh, that's a tactic for you. What was your favorite word? My favorite word? Uh, we use the word robust a lot at Dimensional. I may even use it today. It's, it's a good one. <laughs> All right. That's a good one. That's a, that's a good uh, That's a good. Uh, we'll keep score. Okay. I will tell you how you did at the end. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. What is something that you do differently than most people? Something that I do differently than most people? Um, well, I think cooking is something I do differently than most people in that my food always turns out wrong. So uh, <laughs> clearly cannot follow a recipe for the life of me. Uh, not something I'm proud of, but uh, you know, it's, it's edible enough. So you try, but, but the results are not always great. So you're not so different from me, actually. <laughs> That's that's half the battle, right? right All right. Brian? Now, now for this one, now I know you're going to feel pressure to answer based on where you work and the, the people that work there, but if you had to name your greatest of all time in business, sport, or entertainment, who would you pick? Greatest of all time. Well, I am a big tennis fan, so Roger Federer is one of the greatest of all time, whether yep. you think athletes uh, or otherwise. What he's done is just remarkable. It's an Absolutely. art Absolutely, yep. There's a lot of head nods here in the room. Um, Mary Amy's like, who's Roger Federer? I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that's a great pick, actually. We haven't gotten that one before, have we? No, no. We've had no one with the tennis uh, bent. Oh. Yeah. yeah that's okay. a good, good answer. Good, good, good answer. answer. Yeah. All right. So this is our last one. This is the Name That Tune section, and it's kind of in the theme of the podcast. All right. So Ooh, okay. the theme of the podcast. Now, again, I think we've had one or two people get this right ever. 
And the song always changes. And so this one is about pursuing a better investment experience. So I'm going to play the song through the mic. Hopefully you can hear it. There's so many songs about pursuing a better investment Here experience. <laughs> I could, I could hear it, but uh, I don't think I have an answer. Can you hear Jimmy? Can you, you can hear Jimmy. You can listen to Jimmy, but you can't hear Jimmy. Dave? Well, yeah, I mean, I knew it in like the first like two notes. Okay, you want to help, help Russell out? Let me look to Mariami first. You got that? Mm, definitely not. Dave? Okay, Jimmy, J- Jimmy Hendrix, are you experienced? Are you experienced? Ah, Off the okay. first? I don't Jimmy think Hendrix. he was talking about investing. No, I don't think he was no, either. No, no. But that's not the ah. point. It was That's like 1968, 67, I yeah. think, when he came Well, you're a good sport. All right, so let's dive in. All right, so, Russell, the, for, for many years, uh, we've kind of worked with Dimensional Fund Advisors, and there are some really key things that you guys talk about in terms of how to improve, maximize the investment experience of clients and that's something we try to do every day here in our financial planning firm. So there are a couple specific ones that I want to touch on, and maybe you can help elaborate a little bit with your thoughts. Um, and in no particular order, one of the first things we talk about with clients is um, kind of embracing market pricing and talking about how markets work, quote unquote, efficiently uh, to set prices. Um, and so when we talk to people about performance and getting market returns, Talk about what is market pricing and market efficiency, set working efficiently a set price. What does that mean uh, kind of in your world? And what can you help our listeners understand? Yeah, market efficiency is a huge buzzword in our industry. And uh, yeah, I think there's sometimes some confusion in what that means. Um, so for us, really, when we say embrace market pricing, what we mean is that uh, market prices are an incredible information processing machine. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, I used to spend all of my summers up in uh, kind of rural Delaware. And my uncle was a, uh, an artist, actually. So he owned an art shop. And we would always go to these uh, estate sales and try to you know, find these, these paintings that then he could sell. And I distinctly remember this one day. He had, uh, you know, kind of his eyes gleam because he saw this painting from across the room. He knew it was worth about a thousand bucks. And he ran to that painting, grabbed it. And sure enough, somebody else grabbed that painting at the same time. And, you know, it was, it was the price tag said a hundred bucks, but for better, or for worse, my uncle got it for about a thousand dollars. And that's just with two savvy market participants in rural Delaware. <laughs> now, you know, the, the real world in public markets, which is what we're all investing in, um, has hundreds of billions of dollars traded each and every day just in global stocks. And there are tens of millions of trades made each and every day as well by lots and lots of savvy market participants. So information really is quickly incorporated into that market price. And it's incredibly difficult to kind of outguess that market. And that's really what we mean by kind of market efficiency or using the market price as your guide. So basically saying, you know, as the retail investor or even investors working with advisors, for the most part, when we say markets are efficient, most of the time it means that they're effectively pricing in whatever information happens to be available for that particular company or, or, or bond or whatever, right? It, exactly. It's extremely difficult to know what's been incorporated into that price and what hasn't. And there are a lot of savvy people that the minute something happens, um, you know, they're acting on that knowledge and embedding it uh, into prices. So this kind of the second point that, that kind of to me follows that, which is, you know, the the uh, the tendency for a lot of folks to try and outguess the market. So great, I get the fact that market, you know, markets incorporate pricing quite quickly. But hey, I happen to know more than the average bear about pharmaceuticals or I think that you know this manager does things better than than the other manager. So talk about in general the research behind stock picking, market timing and kind of what what 
research actually says about that. Yeah. So, so plain and simple, and maybe I'll give a few, uh, few analogies here in a second. Plain and simple, what the data shows is that uh, people that try to outperform, even professionals, kind of mutual fund managers um, that try to beat a benchmark, really fail to do that consistently over time. So there are a lot of studies, both internally that we use at Dimensional and done by third parties that, uh, that look at how many mutual funds and mutual fund managers that are trying to beat their benchmark even survive over a decade or 15 years. And on average, about half are gone. Um, they're not able to do it. They're not even able to stay in business. Um, you know, maybe less than a quarter on average, both stocks and bonds, um, continue or actually beat their benchmark. Um, so incredibly difficult to do, incredibly difficult to also see based on past performance, who's going to continue to outperform in the future. There's really no reliable data in terms of, uh, will a, a past mutual fund active manager or active investor continue to uh, outperform in the future. So then what's, let me ask, and then Dave, I just interrupted him. So what's the average bear to do then? So having said all that, um, how, what's the best way, how do we figure out where, what's the best approach for, for, for the average person then? Yeah. So I think at a high level, the important takeaway for markets is that there's wisdom in the crowds and that together we know more than we do alone. And kind of a, a simple way that we, we show this in a lot of regular events with advisors or clients is to actually put a jar of jelly beans uh, in front of people. And so you'd have this large jar, you know, uh, probably hundreds and hundreds of beans in there. And we'd ask people to say, you know, what is your best guess? And a lot of different people take a lot of different approaches, put their underlying uh, assumptions in there. But every time we do this study, um, we see that the average is right there, um, the same as the number of jelly beans actually in the jar. It's remarkable. And, uh, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's something well worth doing, um, you know, with your clients as well. Um, but it, it really get, goes to show that, uh, yeah, together there is that collective knowledge. So uh, another key thing to think is, okay, you want to harness the market. You want to use that collective knowledge. Um, well, why can't I just do stock picking, right? Um, why can't I pick a handful of, uh, of the best people that maybe pick the, the best jelly beans or the best companies? And, and that's where I think there's a distinction. So uh, in investing, it's not just about picking those best companies. It's not saying, you know, I think Amazon's a great company or I think Apple's a great company. Um, you actually have to uh, pick a company that's going to outperform expectations. And that's the key distinction. Everybody's incorporating their expectation. So you essentially have to know more than the aggregate participant. Uh, and so the way I like to think about it is, you know, with football, uh, you think about uh, Penny's you know, Penny's say Alabama. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that often uh, uh, gets some, some non-finance people excited. Uh, but, you know, you think about college football, Alabama has just been steamrolling everybody right now. Well, let's Roll say time. they're playing. <laughs> Penny's an Auburn fan, by the way. So oh, nice. you just Auburn lost grad. one of your audience here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Russell. Yeah. Good thing she didn't have a mic today. Well, assuming they're not playing Auburn, uh, right. let's say they're playing Podunk State. Um, you know, a good team versus a bad team. How do you make money in it in terms of uh, you know betting on that game? You you don't just have to pick Alabama, right? <laughs> you have to actually pick, okay. How, by how much is Alabama going to beat that other team? And, uh, and that's a whole nother ballgame. That is a heck of a lot more difficult. And there's no reliable indication that people can consistently, you know, pick the spreads for uh, football games or uh, investments over time. So are you, a, are you a Bama grad, by the way? I am a UT Longhorn, so a Texas grad. Okay. Are we okay with that, Benny? Yeah. Okay, UT's all right. Okay. We're we're slowly making our way back here. <laughs> okay, we're okay. It's good for college football. Dave, you had a question. Shoot. And I think you answered one of them. Um, so I'll continue with what you were discussing around. You know, you have to outperform the market. You know, not only does that manager have to deliver those returns that the market or that that stock's giving it, but it's got to outperform. Um, 
how do people inoculate themselves from the constant barrage of here at XYZ firm, whether it's a mutual fund or a brokerage firm, even a registered investment advisory firm, you know, we have consistently outperformed the market and, you know, lots of folks out there telling a really good story, basically saying, I can pick not only who's going to win that game, but the score. And I've been able to do that because I've got a great track record. Uh, it's certainly part of the American investing psyche. So how do folks pull themselves away from that when that's the message that's out there so much? Yeah, I, I think first and foremost, uh, you know, it's important to, to be educated, to kind of have a process in place in terms of how you're evaluating, um, you know, these managers, these people that are making those type of statements. And I think there are a couple of different ways to go about it. Um, certainly, you need to, to look at costs, you know, the, the people that say they can outperform and are charging you, you know, 2% or, or who knows what, uh, you have to kind of take a step back and think, okay, who's actually probably reaping the rewards <laughs> from uh, the quote unquote uh, alpha or higher returns that, uh, that they're providing? Well, you want to you want to obviously keep costs low, so so that goes to you as the end investor. Uh, I would also say there there are a couple other kind of criteria that are likely to maximize your likelihood of success. There there has to be kind of economic sensibility there, right? You you don't want um, if somebody's saying I can you know pick the next great tech stock, and you know it's only applicable to uh, one or two companies. Are they able to to keep doing it over and over? Um, so a, a process that kind of makes sense. Maybe there's a risk return relationship there. And a, another big thing is you want to see uh, a process that's repeatable over time. So, uh, you know, do you see how they're implementing, uh, show up not just in a small segment of the market, but maybe across, uh, different countries and, uh, across different time periods? And that's really, really important. So, uh, how malleable how robust. I got to use my favorite word in there. <laughs> we'll mark that down. <laughs> that's uh, that's one for the day so far. Um, so yeah, how, how robust is your process um, to to kind of changes and, uh, and how likely is it to outperform in the future? And Russell, a theme that you've uh, had in your remarks is this longer time period. Mm -hmm. And another concern that... Uh, we have when we look at the average investor out there in this country is their time frame is pretty short, right? It's last month. It's the rest of this year. It's I'm down for the year. I've got to be up and I want to be up as much as I was last year. And they're not taking that 10, 15 year time horizon. Um, same question there. I mean, what are some of the things that people should be thinking about to kind of pull themselves out, just kind of reminders so that they aren't thinking about, Oh, okay, sure. Maybe that manager can't outperform the market for 15 years, but they might be able to outperform it for the next 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think kind of Winston Churchill said it best when he said, the further you look back, the, the further you can look ahead. So whether your time horizon is one day, one month, one year, um, you still want to use as much data as you possibly can to make that decision. Um, you know, there's, there are always trade-offs uh, associated with uh, kind of how you you make a decision, but uh, you know, is one day worth of data or one month worth of data uh, enough to kind of assume you know what's going to happen in the future? Uh, we would argue that uh, that's certainly not uh, enough data, and there's a lot of evidence to show that again, when markets function properly, the the current expectations and the expectations of what will happen in the future should be embedded. Uh, into that market price. So it's all about using past data. Cool. Well, and then so that's yet one more component that's uh, counter to the the mainstream. I mean, the mainstream is here are our capital market assumptions, or for the layman, here are our predictions about how things are going to do going forward. Um, seems to be the default, right? I mean, Wall Street's definitely looking at well, you know. Bob, what do you say is going to happen over the next X period of time with stocks? Everybody's an expert. Right. No and, and so um, there, there's a certain bias there, right, of, you know, hell with the past. Here's what we think about the future. Um, what are your thoughts around, you know, using future 
capital market assumptions around what direction the market's going to go uh, in light of what you just said about the further you look in the pack? Yeah. So I will say, you know, first and foremost, why do markets work? Because there are a lot of smart people uh, making expectations about the future, right? Why are markets hard to beat? Um, for same exact reason. Uh, there are a lot of people making those um, underlying assumptions. Now, the, the tougher, the, the toughest part there, too, is they have to be right twice. So not only is there not a lot of evidence that uh, people are actually correct in knowing uh, that they can beat the market and what's been actually put into the market price, but then they also have to know, you know, when do I get back in? So I think 2008 is a great example of that. Uh, some people did predict 2008. Now, uh, a lot of the most famous people for that were predicting it also in 2005, 2006, 2007. Uh, so they may have missed some of the upside. But then, you know, it's been a pretty good bull run the last decade. And if you missed some of that because you, you went into cash, you often would have had a worse investment experience than, you had, than if you'd had this kind of longer term approach to markets. So those are really the trade-offs. There's, there's risk on both ends with an active manager like that. They really do have to be right twice. Yeah, and that's something that you actually beat me to that because, you know, that's something we encounter all the time, which is, yeah, John, we're looking at things. I think we should get out now or let's, you know, go to cash and then let's get back in. And um, we always have to, it's not just being right when to get out, but when to get back in. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, now, I think I've seen some research that talks about, you know, even if you get back in relatively close to when the right time was, simply by missing a few days of of, of the market over the long term can have a significant impact on long-term returns, which is why we, you know, um, acknowledge that we don't know everything, which is why we stay invested and gets back into the structure of the portfolio, which we're going to get to next. But any, any of that research that comes to mind on your side in terms of market timing and being right twice that, uh, you think might be helpful for listeners? Yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable on the, on the stock picking side. I won't get into the specific numbers, but obviously if you buy the market, if you buy everything, you know, you're going to get more or less the market return. Um, but let's say you miss the top 10 performance, top 10% of performance. Well, then all of a sudden your return on average is cut in half. If you look at the past few de decades in data, you exclude the top 25% of performers. All of a sudden you have a negative return. So it's, it's, it's tough. You want to those have are big numbers. It, those are, those really are big numbers. Nobody wants uh, a several decade negative return. So that's a huge testament to broad diversification there. And you can do the same thing in terms of market timing data as well. Look at um, the, the data that shows what if you miss the 25 best dates in terms of the market return. Over how many uh, periods? How many years? Since 19 what? So since 1990, so the last 27 years, your return again would have been cut in half uh, just from missing 25 days over 27 years. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, so we like to say here at Dimensional, it's not a matter of timing. It's a matter of time. That's that's kind of your uh, your biggest arsenal that you have. And it's a real test of of discipline. Um, you know, it's something we we deal with every day uh, here, which is is exactly that. It's the twenty five days out of how many say thirty years or whatever. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's really a small window of time it can really have an adverse uh, impact on your experience. All right, let me get into. Uh, so we've talked about you know market efficiency and what that means. We've talked about you know. Um, market timing, stock picking. So if people are still with us, you know, let's talk a little bit about um, the different factors or the different things that not only Dimensional being uh, known for, but the different kind of levers people can pull when they're building their portfolio, right? So on the uh, let's talk about the equity side first. I know Dave wants to get into bonds too, which would be great, especially in, in the era of rising is, rates. Is this where Russell tells us what stocks to buy now? Well, now we're, now we're going to get the compliance people on on us. So, no, absolutely not. So I have 12,000 stocks globally that yeah. uh, I'll recommend here well, at, well played. Uh, at one time. Well played. <laughs> but in terms of equities, kind of on the, on the dimensional side, I mean, we've heard it for many years, and I would assume a lot of our listeners, either by listening to us or just being savvy on their own, kind of have heard these before. But, you know, the first question we always um, – address is, well, what is the exposure to the market that somebody should have, right? So, you know, stocks to bonds in the simplest form. Then when you get into the equity side or stock side, there are different things that people should consider. And based on research, what kind of, what are the things that come to mind uh, on the dimensional side that you think listeners would, would um, 
benefit from knowing? Yeah, sure. So before I dive into the specific um, factors um, that you referenced, kind of the, the different drivers of return, I think maybe take it. we'll take a step back. And uh, I just want to clarify that just because the market's efficient, just because um, you know the market quickly incorporates information, doesn't mean that all companies should have the same expected return. So that that sometimes surprises people, but I think you know if, if you think about it, if uh, the CEO of Apple uh, asks you, "Hey, I, I want to borrow some money for uh, my next investment opportunity," you'd probably require a different interest rate from them. You'd probably say, "Yeah, maybe there's a uh, you know a, a different level of risk there than if the college community college student across the street had the same pitch um, ask you uh, for a loan." And, and that doesn't mean there's a mispricing there at all, right? That's just uh, kind of markets working. There could be a lot of different reasons for why you're requiring one interest rate for another. But just want to say that you know it doesn't mean anything's wrong or misaligned with market efficiency. It just means, in fact, you know, maybe markets are working. Um, so with, with that said, let's kind of dive into to some of those factors. Uh, the first one, and, and by the way, this is what Dimensional tilts its portfolios towards. And it's also what a lot of the academic theory and what the kind of uh, economic consensus is for the most part as well. Uh, the first one is size. So this idea that smaller companies tend to outperform larger companies over time. The uh, next one is- Can I, can I interrupt real quick? So does oh, that mean that I should put all yeah. my equities in small cap? <laughs> so should you go 100% small cap? Yeah, if it outperforms, it's a, just a typical client question. Well, why don't I just do that? I've got yeah. 30 years. What's the, what's the kind of the counter argument or the the moderating thought there? Yeah, so if you look at the highest expected return um, portfolios, sometimes they do have really heavy um, tilts towards these smaller companies. But uh, unfortunately, there's no free lunch there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, maybe I'll take us back to the late '90s, the the tech tech boom. Um, well, large cap growth stocks outperformed often by huge margins versus these smaller companies. And uh, the real question is, can you stick with some double-digit underperformance? It's, it's often really tough to do. And uh, kind of your only free lunch in investing, if you want kind of a smoother ride, it really is diversification. It really is having some smaller companies, some maybe some mid-cap companies, and some large, large-cap companies in your portfolio, kind of round it out. Yeah, it's the ultimate test when you look at the statement across all your asset classes. And there's always something that's underperforming. And the natural tendency is, well, I want more of the one that's up, right? And it's it's a it's the ultimate test of discipline and, and uh, academic uh, academics at work. So, sorry, I had interrupt, interrupted you after you were talking about this kind of the size premium. No, that's that's important. I think uh, yeah, discipline is the the most important part of this whole process in terms of uh, you know how you're investing. Um, so yeah, we we do see uh, not just in the U.S. but in international developed and emerging markets um, that smaller companies outperform larger companies. And indeed, for us to feel confident that that type of relationship is going to continue in the future, we do need to see that uh, across the different data sets. And you do see this across sectors as well over time. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's going to show up each and every day, but on expectation, you would expect smaller companies to outperform larger companies. The uh, the next one is relative price. Uh, a lot of you may have uh, heard this defined as value versus growth. Um, and so kind of the, the simple way to think about what is a value stock, I like to think about it as uh, underlying some underlying metric. So let's call it the book value or accounting value, kind of what the company's worth. What's the price of that company? Uh, excuse me, what's the price? Uh, yeah, in the public markets. So you tend to see that cheaper stocks relative to that book value or accounting value tend to outperform more expensive stocks over time. And that's kind of intuitive, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's the value premium. And again, it shows up across asset classes across time, uh, even if it doesn't necessarily show up each and every year. And do you see that type of a premium kind of it, both domestically and internationally? Developed markets, emerging markets, is that a pretty standard, uh, I don't want to say phenomenon, that's not the right word, but a standard uh, thing? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Um, so the nice part about being invested in different countries is uh, the, the value premium does show up in, in pretty much all the, the country data we have out there, but at different times. 
Um, so we'll, we'll kind of smooth, smooth it out. So some of you may have U.S. value stocks in your portfolio. Um, doesn't necessarily uh, mean that international or emerging markets uh, stocks uh, or value stocks will perform the same way. But who's, who all here in the room has seen that stained glass window chart, you know, that shows from year to year where there's no, it seems like there's a random order to what classes kind of perform from one year to the next. Mariami hasn't seen it. Have you seen it? Yeah, I have. Nice. All right. Everybody. Penny has too. I know she has. Dave, of course he has. Russell, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. yeah the, the beautiful window panes. Um, yeah, we call it the randomness of returns okay. chart. Okay. And uh, you can look back um, for, for several years and see, okay, you know, U.S. stocks, for example, have done quite well here the last uh, few years. Does that mean that you should be, uh, you know, totally in U.S. stocks? Um, well, uh, for better, for worse, the U.S. has not always been the best performing stock. And in fact, we can kind of rank all the different countries and uh, you won't really see a consistent pattern there. In fact, you'll, you'll tend to see the smoothest ride when you've got exposure to all of those different countries. So for those folks who have no idea what we're talking about, if you Google <laughs> randomness of returns or stained glass window chart investments, you'll see the picture we're talking about. Pretty much every company these days has their own version of that. I think it's kind of helpful. So the last one I want to talk on the equity side real quick is around this notion of profitability, high profitability versus low profitability companies. And then I want to dive into bonds while we have time. So the profitability kind of factor, that's probably within the past five to 10 years has kind of been one of the newer levers or uh, 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 drivers of returns. Explain that in layperson's terms, what that means. Yeah. So this, this really is the, uh, the most recent dimension for us. So there, there really are about four factors that we tilt towards in our portfolios. If you include the, the market, then size, then value. And we say, you know, holding those other factors constant, the ones I just mentioned, more profitable companies tend to outperform less profitable companies over time. Seems like common sense, right? Why would you invest in one that wasn't profitable or relatively, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. There's a lot of kind of economic intuition there. Uh, it really came down to, you know, why did it take so long uh, to kind of have a, a consistent way of, you know, how we're going to implement that? Well, we, we really did want a, a kind of a robust uh, number two. way. That's number two, Got exactly, uh, of measuring it where it does show up across sectors, uh, across asset classes. Really, again, the goal is to increase reliability of outcomes um, in terms of how we're, we're measuring profitability and how we're implementing it effectively. All right. Everybody got that? Okay. <laughs> so how does someone, you know, Joe investor who, who doesn't have an advisor, who's looking to kind of maximize their experience on the investment side, they understand they want to have some value premium, they want to understand the size premium, they want to take advantage of this profitability um, love, lever. So mm -hmm. other than going to dimensional funds, I mean, are there ways that the, the, the retail investor can get access to these different areas, generally speaking? Ways of getting access to the, the different parts of the market? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so certainly uh, the, the dimensional funds are available with, uh, with financial advisors and institutions. Um, and we would say, you know, you can, you can have broad access to these asset classes in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we would say kind of broadly diversified uh, mutual funds and, and ETFs are probably, uh, from a theoretical standpoint, better than uh, picking individual stocks uh, or getting that exposure from individual stocks, right. certainly. Um, but uh, yeah, different advisors kind of have different levels of tilts towards those premiums, kind of based on the, the client's risk tolerance. And, and that's really where I think the, the value of the advisor kind of comes in. What makes the most sense in terms of how much you want to look similar or different to the market? Okay. So I want to shift focus here because we have about 20 minutes left and it always seems that the fixed income part of the discussion or the portfolio is always like the stepchild. Everyone wants to talk about the equity markets, but I think that the bond markets are often probably the least understood by the lay people. And there are a lot of complicating factors in that. So I was hoping we could talk a little bit about that and start. I know Dave had got some great questions uh, for you, some zingers for you, Russell. Um, <laughs> All right. But some of the words that come up right away when we talk are term and credit. So when we talk about fixed income and bonds, which in a lot of cases can be over half of our clients' portfolios, um, there are different things that people should understand. So term and credit, explain kind of at a high level what that means. 
Yeah. So, so just like we talked about on the, the equity side, um, kind of the, the different ways to explain returns. So kind of like, uh, you know, if I were to tell you, John, that, uh, you know, to ask you, how much would you pay for my house? You'd probably want to ask a few questions, you know, maybe, uh, you know, what's the location of the house? What are the number of bedrooms, number of bathrooms, things like that? Uh, you can do the same thing for these factors to explain returns. So for fixed income, the ways to kind of explain returns um, are both term or maturity and credit quality of a bond. So the way I like to think about the term premium is this, just this kind of intuitive idea that the longer it takes you uh, or longer it takes somebody to pay you back, the higher the return you require, right? Right. And, and sure enough, that's exactly what you see in the data. All else being equal, if somebody's going to pay you back longer, um, you uh, you tend to see a higher return. Um, and then uh, on the credit side, uh, if somebody were to tell you, um, you know, I need to borrow money and they have lower the credit quality, well, you'd probably require a higher return than if somebody had a higher credit quality. And so you also see this credit premium in the market. Um, so those are kind of the two levers you can push um, primarily to uh, kind of change your expected return on the bond side. Okay. Now, I, I want to caveat this with, of course, does that mean you should go really, really long term and go really, really low quality? Naturally. <laughs> well, probably not. Uh, I think it would go back to kind of having that conversation with your advisor, uh, me and your clients, and kind of you know, understand what's the goal of the fixed income in the portfolio. And often it's not just higher expected return. Right. Dave, no, I had, you had some great questions. You want to? Well, I think it's kind of timely, right? Because uh, there's been a lot in the news over the past few months. Interest rates are going up. Right? The Fed monetary action, they're increasing rates. I think a lot of investors don't really know what that means. And at the same time, they look at their statement and say, wait a minute, my bond portfolio or the portion of my portfolio that are bond funds isn't doing so hot. And there's an area where I think some people could use a little bit of clarity. I thought we could talk about that to start. Interest rates are going up. Their bond performance is going down. At the same time, if you bought a bond today that's paying a higher interest rate, then you're going to get more every month, right? So that I, I find a lot of folks find that to be a math that just is over their head. When might yeah. Be yeah, so for the for the most part, for the last several decades, we've been kind of in a declining interest rate environment. So uh, at a very high level, uh, all being equal, when uh, when yields or for simplicity, let's say interest rates go down, um, prices tend to go up. And the, the way I like to think about that is, you know, if, if you were um, locking in a four percent interest rate and then interest rates went down, and now everybody else is getting three percent. Well, you're the you're the talk of the town, right? You're you're getting four percent when everybody else is getting three percent on an equivalent bond. You would expect um, your price to, to increase. Um, now, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of talk here recently about rising rates, and some people, you know, feel uncomfortable. What does that mean for my bond portfolio? Um, well, first and foremost, I think bonds definitely play a a role in a lot of people's portfolio because they tend to move differently than stocks. Um, so just because uh, securities, stocks, or bonds go up or down doesn't mean that you shouldn't have them in the portfolio. Um, there is some some diversification benefit there. And uh, and then second, it, you know the the reason you do have some return in, in bonds as well is because there is some element of of risk. Um, and, and I wouldn't say as well that interest rates going up is necessarily a bad thing, right? Uh, if you buy a uh, a bond and you're getting a higher interest rate, um, well, that, that may mean a higher future return for that bond. Um, now, of course, you want a broad diversification in your, your bonds as well across yield curves. And there's uh, probably won't get into it too much today, but there's a lot of information in uh, yield curve shapes as well. And a lot of different countries have different yield curve shapes. So just because interest rates are going up in the U.S. doesn't mean it's going to go up uh, in every country as well. So uh, that's the value of international bond diversification. Well, Russell, let me stop you for a second there. That's really interesting. Let's walk back. Uh, we talked about interest rates going up. 
mm-hmm. then you talked about yields. And if you could explain to the listeners, what's the difference between the interest rate and the yield? Yeah. Um, so uh, interest rate is based on kind of the uh, the face value or the uh, um, the price when the bond was issued. And yield is essentially the interest rate divided by the current price. Um, so that, uh, focusing more on price, uh, the yield is more of a current estimation of, uh, of what you're receiving. So the yield, it's kind of like you think about farming. It's, 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 it's what you're going to reap, right? It's, it's, it's what you get for what you paid. That's, that's a great way to put it. I like that. And so then how does all of this translate for a mutual fund bond investor? It's a little different for them, isn't it? It is. It is. Um, and uh, we actually um, recently outlined a, a paper that just because interest rates go up doesn't necessarily mean that bond returns will go down. Um, so I'll, I'll start there because there are a lot of different underlying components for a mutual fund uh, bond investor. Um, they're actually buying and selling bonds. So there are other factors beyond just interest rates going up that you need to uh, factor in. Things like uh, capital gain in the, uh, in the portfolio. Um, so the, uh, the gain or loss from the shape of the yield curve that can make a difference. So I would say uh, talk to your advisor about uh, some of the papers we have on that subject if you want to dive deeper into kind of the effect of interest rates on returns. Uh, but there's a lot going on there. And then I would say mutual funds, one of the big advantages on the bond side is that all is being equal, it tends to try to keep the maturity or duration more constant. Whereas a bond, if you're just holding an individual bond, well, of course, over time, if it's a five-year bond, One year later, it's going to be a four-year bond. One year later, it's going to be a three-year bond. And so you're going to have very different characteristics in that bond over several years, um, which may not be the desired goal um, when you initially invested in it. All right. So Mary Ame here, as I mentioned, she's set for the CFP exam uh, this -hmm. past Friday. Was it this past Friday? Time flies. So. And she's got a she's got a CFP question for you, Russell. And this is Ooh, like investments, maybe three hundred one <laughs> or four hundred one. So the the trick here will be to put it in language that people can understand. So, go ahead, Mary Amy, fire away. Yeah. So um, during my review, we were talking about maturity, which you mentioned as being something that is important to consider um, when talking about bonds. And so. My question is, what is the difference between maturity and duration, and how is duration important for the individual investor? Sure. Um, So the differences between maturity and duration and kind of how to think about that. Um, At a high level, the way I think about duration, and this may not be the, uh, the most technical explanation, but it's kind of the sensitivity to interest rates. Um, so all being equal, a higher duration will be more sensitive to interest rates. Um, I think you can also think about duration in terms of, from a theoretical standpoint, um, how long until you get your money back. Uh, whereas maturity is, uh, when does essentially the bond, uh, expire? Uh, when do you get your coupon payment back? Um, when do all of your, your interest rate payments, um, stop? What do you think? Would he have gotten that question right on the exam? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <Oof>. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. All right. So I have just a, a kind of a couple wrap up things here because um, I know we're running kind of short on time. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and ask that. And if there's any last questions on bonds or anything, um, we can go back to those. But so I think our listeners, you know, they've heard about a lot of things that they should consider and kind of whether they're building their own portfolio or working with an advisor. And one of the things that I think everybody, or maybe it's just me being a control freak, but everybody wants to feel like they're in control. And I think in the investments world, some things are not, they're uncontrollable, they're unknowable. So in your experience, what are some of those things that people can control? Some things that, that you know are relatively easy to, to, to have a better investment experience. Yeah. So I, I'd start with just this basic idea that every successful investor I've ever known was acting continuously on a plan. So they weren't uh, basing their decisions on the headlines because that really isn't something that you can control as an investor. Um, you, you need to define you know, what your risk tolerance is, what you're comfortable with, and then sort of go from there. Uh, I've heard some people say, I think this was you know, Mike Tyson, you, you don't know 
um, how you're going to react until you get punched in the face. Yeah, it's one of Dave's um, favorite quotes, I think. It, it is a good quote. I don't know if it's a favorite, but that, that's a good reminder. At least top five. I've heard you say it a few <laughs> times. Yeah, it's, it's a good one and very relevant for investing. You know, you don't, you don't know how you're going to react to a 30% drawdown until you, you know, feel one. <laughs> um, so I would, I would be kind of aware of that and, and identify that risk tolerance uh, as being sort of a, a key uh, part of that initial thought process. Uh, structure your portfolios around things that are economically sensible, around those uh, dimensions of expected return. Uh, I would say, you know, again, diversifying globally because there is going to be uncertainty in this world. There's zero doubt about that. Nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, you know, as long as you have a broad market exposure and then kind of deviate from there, you're, you're probably going to come out with a reasonable investment experience. Uh, and then the other things you can control are expenses, turnover, and taxes. And that's where I think, uh, again, an advisor can kind of come into play and, and talk through some of those variables, talk through the costs associated with uh, different investment solutions, because that is, that is a manageable um, expense for a lot of people. All right. Well, that, well said. You hit on all the points I was hoping you would hit on. Let me look around the table here before we wrap up. Any any questions from folks here that uh, you're you have a burning desire to ask our resident CFA on the call? Everybody's happy. Everybody's brain's about to explode. <laughs> all right. Well, Russell Brackett, thanks very much for joining the Evo Five Podcast. It was great having you on. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. We appreciate the time. So for all our listeners out there, just as a reminder, uh, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify and check us out on Instagram or on uh, what other social media do we do these days? Twitter. Everybody does Twitter. Yeah, Twitter, that too. Uh, and uh, you can send us an email at evo5podcast at gmail.com. So everybody have a great Thanksgiving and uh, we will see you all soon. Again, Russell Brockett, thanks so much, my friend, and we will talk to you soon.